0: Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The U.S. government estimates that sea levels will rise by as much as two feet by the middle of the century due to a warming climate. Already the impact of higher water is being felt in points around the country. In Hampton Roads, Virginia, and Miami Beach, nuisance flooding has become the predictable norm. Miami Beach is spending half a billion dollars to elevate roads and install pumps in an effort to stay dry. And Houston, New York, and New Orleans, all cities that are just feet above sea level, have recently seen unprecedented and devastating flooding. How might rising seas impact America's coastal centers in the decades to come? Will innovative engineering allow cities and towns to be protected, and at what cost? Or will the seas prevail, leaving some areas to be abandoned? Here to talk about the future implications of sea level rise are today's guests, Jeff Goodell and Billy Fleming. Jeff and Billy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Likewise.
0: Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor with Rolling Stone magazine, where his writing focuses on environmental and climate issues. Last year, he published his sixth book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World, which earned a Critics' Top Book Award from the New York Times. Billy Fleming is research director for the Ian L. McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Design. His research focuses on climate adaptation planning along the U.S. coast. Jeff and Billy, thanks again for coming to the podcast. Jeff, I thought I'd start out by asking you about your writing and what has led you to focus your book and other recent writing on sea level rise.
1: Well, you know, I've been writing about climate change, climate science um, for 15 years or so, and I knew about sea level rise, but I thought like many people think of it as some sort of far off distant problem that our grandchildren might have to deal with or something. Um, and, and then Hurricane Sandy hit New York. Uh, I wasn't in New York, uh, but I went down the next day and wandered around the Lower East Side. And um, the Lower East Side, you know, had got about nine feet of water came into Lower Manhattan and I saw the you know the streets, you know, the cars still look like aquariums, you know, people dragging soggy mattresses out of their basements. and i I thought about how to cover it, and I talked to a uh, friend of mine who's a climate scientist at Columbia, and he said, "Well, one way to think about this is as a kind of dress rehearsal for sea level rise." And I said, you know, what do you mean?" And he said, "Well, uh, you know, this nine feet of water is sort of like the high end of what we think we might get by the end of the century. Imagine that water comes in and instead of going away in two or three hours as it did with sandy it just stays there and i was like wow that's a pretty Mm -hmm. profound idea and he said well you really want to blow your mind go have that same thought experiment in miami and i said why and he said go and you will see and i went and i saw and you know within 24 hours it was very clear to me that kind of miami as we know it today um you know, is, going, is not going to make it by the end of the century, that the challenges in Miami because of all the real estate that's right on the water, because of the flat topography, and because it's basically built on Swiss cheese, you know, kind of porous limestone, there's no way to kind of really build defenses. And so that really uh, did blow my mind. Uh, I wrote a Rolling Stone story with the very subtle title of Goodbye Miami, and it really got me to thinking about what the risks are, not just in Miami, but in coastal cities around the world. Jeff, I've had the opportunity to read your
0: new book. It's fascinating, and at the same time, it's, it's kind of scary. The overall sense I took away was that certain coastal areas are, in a very real sense, under siege from the sea. And the title of your book doesn't mince words either. The water will come. It implies
1: inevitability. Have you gotten any pushback? Um, I mean, some people have... Not, not on the inevitability of it. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, you know, have different ideas about how we will deal with it. I think the X factor is essentially human psychology, um, but not on the on the science of it. I mean, I think it's, the reason I called the book The Water Will Come is, um, you know, it's really important to understand that because of the amount of heat that's built up in the Earth's climate, especially in the oceans, um, there's an inevitability to sea level rise. No matter what we do, if we all sell our SUVs and ride skateboards to work, whatever we do, Um, we're still going to have a significant amount of sea level rise. We can have, we can slow the trajectory some, we can change the ultimate height of it. I'm not at all saying that it's not worth cutting carbon. Cutting carbon is incredibly important, but sea level rise is inevitable. And so I didn't call the book, you know, the water will come unless we all get solar panels or something like that. You know, it's about the inevitability of this. And and the, the need to stare this in the face and really think realistically about what we're going to do about this and how we're best – what are the smartest responses to this? You talked about uh,
0: specifically the issue of Miami, the flooding that goes there. But I want to ask you more generally, for someone who lives in one of these coastal areas, what does sea level rise
1: look like? It has
0: various faces, I'd imagine.
1: Right, and one of the one of the complicated things about sea level rises, it looks different everywhere. I mean, more some places are more vulnerable than others, but basically, what it looks like is you know creeping higher tides. You know, it's like what people call nuisance flooding. Um, you know, it just gets higher and higher. You notice at the high tide you know, this November that you know the water has come into your kitchen and it didn't used to come into your kitchen. And it's so this sort of slow pushing of higher tides. And then it will also look um, a little bit like what Hurricane Harvey looked like and things like that where you have major storm events with a, a bigger surge in, in, her, in Houston that had issues with the drainage of the water because mm-hmm. of the higher sea levels. I mean, there's a, a lot of impacts um, that are related to storms also. But in a daily way, it's this, this kind of creeping higher tides.
0: There are hundreds of billions of dollars of high-class real estate in Miami, Miami Beach. And hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested to protect that. What specifically has been done to this point?
1: Well, in Miami Beach, they've spent um, about $500 million um, uh, on various pump systems to try to um, pump out the water that floods in, uh, improving the drainage uh, of, of the um, uh, neighborhoods that are most uh, vulnerable. And then in about a 15 or 20 block area, elevating um, the streets uh, and sidewalks and things to keep the streets dry, which is an interesting approach, um, uh, but has caused other problems also, Um it moves the water to other places, um, and it's an interesting experiment, and it's been kind of politically helpful to, uh, in Miami Beach to keep up the idea that we're doing something about this and that we can solve this problem. But um, the notion that we're simply going to uh, save Miami Beach by elevating the entire city um, is foolish, and it's not going to happen. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, sh- a short-term fix. That um, one of the problems is all of these kind of adaptation measures are going to be get more and more expensive, and there's already pushback in Miami Beach about this. It's like, why did you elevate this block and not my block? Mm-hmm. You know, you were we we're, we're pumping the stormwater out of. Uh, you know, Miami Beach, where it floods, but we're pumping it into Biscayne Bay and it's polluted and it's polluting the bay. And, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we not treating it? You know, there's all kinds of knock-on complexities. So that they've actually stalled it now. They've put a halt on the progress of this with the new mayor in Miami Beach because of all of these complexities that have already arisen from these adaptation measures.
0: Um,
1: you quoted in the book
0: uh, a scientist from uh, one of the universities in Miami who does research on the water quality um, and the water quality of these floodwaters. Um, one of the things that hit me as I was reading the book is that there's a real immediate health risk involved in terms of potential for infectious diseases, et cetera.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, um, I was out with this scientist who was testing the floodwaters in an area of, of Miami where the bacteria count was 3,000 times higher than you know, state uh, public health standards. And, you know, there were kids out running around in, in this water. And, you know, we think about tides and flooding and all this, and we think, and we even think longer term about sea level rise and living with water and all that. And, and I think there's a tendency, certainly that I had myself, is to think, oh, well, Venice is a nice place. What's wrong with cities on water and having a little more water and we'll have canals and it'll be wonderful? But that's not the way it's going to play out. Um the submerging of a major, America, or major cities is not going to be pretty. It's not – there's going to be you know, not just um, leakage from sewage systems, septic tanks, um, but also you know, Superfund sites. All, kind, all kinds of stuff is buried uh, in coastal areas uh, in cities that's going to be leaching out. And this, this water that is going to be coming into our lives is going to be toxic. It's going to be a mess. And um, we're just beginning in places like Miami to understand that. And that's one of the things that um, people in Miami Beach were, are most freaked out about actually now is is this understanding that, oh, this water, we don't want to touch.
0: So this is a problem that you quote, uh, talk about in, in various cities. And one of the cities, the other cities that you bring up is Venice, Italy. And you talk about an engineer who who is working there on this massive floodgate uh, that's meant to stop high-level flooding in, in Venice. And there's a, a quote in here that I'd like to read very briefly. It says, this is from the uh, the engineer who's speaking in Venice. He says, these structures, and I think he's referring to the floodgate that they're working on, these structures are not about solving the problem. They're about buying time until we better figure out how big the problem really is, okay? You also talk in the book about our faith in engineering and technology eventually pulling us out of risk. You can build higher walls. You can build better pumping systems, whatever it may be. You describe that as a source of denial. How does that tie in with this image of the engineer who doesn't really know what the future is going to look like? um, And we don't really know what it's going to take to solve this problem long term.
1: Right. So, you know, one of the problems with sort of the idea of engineering solutions for sea level rise in cities like Venice or any coastal city is you know what are we really engineering to? How do we engineer in a flexible way? One of the problems with Venice, um, with this uh, barrier system they've built there, uh, which they spent 25 years designing, they've spent about five to six billion dollars on this, on this barrier. Uh, one of the engineers there calls it the Ferrari on the seafloor because it's very sophisticated. It goes down when the tides are low and when storm surge or high tides come up. It, it floats up. They fill it with air and it floats up so you don't have to look at it all the time. It's it's very cool in many ways, except that they didn't factor in sea level rise when they engineered it. And there's no way to kind of, you know, add on to it as seas rise. So they've spent $6 billion on a barrier system that's essentially going to be obsolete in a decade or two. And it, it, it goes to the problem of, you know, yes, you can build these barriers, but you know, When you've spent $6 billion or something on this, and then you have to go back to the people of Venice or wherever again and say, oh, well, you know what? Now we need to spend another $10 billion. And at a certain point, the economics of this become overwhelming. And that's the problem with a lot of engineering solutions. There's a lot of things that can be done, improving drainage, seawalls at certain places. Everywhere is different. There's no one size fit all solution to this. But the, the central problem is uh, economical is the economics of this and the sort of um, engineering to f- for these sort of flexible goals so that if you don't know the seas are going to rise one feet or four feet, how do you d- design an engineering pathway that builds that kind of flexibility into it?
0: Bill, you've done a lot of work on this. Have you seen the same kind of phenomenon or problem in in cities, for example, in the United States? Yeah, I
2: think a lot of places go down a very uh, troublesome path when it comes to climate adaptation, right? I think a lot of them approach uh, the challenge of climate change and sea level rise as a problem to be solved. And it's actually probably not a problem we can solve. It's more like a condition of the 21st century is sea level rise and climate change. And... Every time you look at you know every sea level rise or climate change model that gets produced, whether it's by the IPCC or NOAA or any other entity that studies this stuff, they always underestimate. So every time they put out a new model, sea level rise looks worse, uh, the pace of climate change looks faster, and we just don't ha- we don't have the uh, ability to model the world fast enough and accurately enough to engineer our way out of it. Um, one of the things I've always really appreciated about Jeff's writing, and especially in this book is that it's necessarily dystopic. Um, I think the environmental movement uses dystopia a lot, uh, not always very effectively. And folks outside of that movement in the sort of chamber of commerce, growth machine, politics kinds of cities that are thinking about how to adapt their their coastlines to sea level rise and climate change are, I think, optimistic to a fault at times. And I think, you know, one of the things I've really appreciated about Jeff's work on this is that uh, it's, not hopeless. Um, there's no, there's a tinge of hopelessness, I think, in the writing, right, that this is a thing you can't push against the ocean forever. Um, but it's not striking that same chord that, you know, is on one end of either spectrum between sort of, you know, hope and, and ever-burning optimism and despair. And I think if you look at some of the projects that have been proposed in those two places where they're striking one of those two chords, uh, they're not going to be successful. And it's particularly true if you look at a place like Uh, New York and in Staten Island, Uh, I think if you look at you know Scapes project there, right? The Living Breakwaters project was, which is essentially a system of nearshore reefs intended to slow down shoreline erosion, and they would tell you to knock down storm surge, which it won't actually do. Um, That's a project where you know the authors of it will tell you the era of big infrastructure is over, and they tell you that because we don't know how to build the kinds of systems that they or engineers might tell you we need to build our way out of this crisis.
0: Jeff, I'd like to ask you if, you, if you would, to read the quote
1: from the book um, that, that kind of
0: goes to the next, the next big issue here, if you would.
1: Of all the hard decisions people who live on vulnerable coasts will have to face, the most difficult one is the idea of retreat. Retreat, after all, is what you do if you're standing on the beach and the tide comes up too fast. You get out of the way. Is retreat inevitable? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, and retreat is um, a dirty word uh, right now for every kind of politician. Every time uh, you know a big storm hits a coastal city, the first thing that the governor or the mayor or whoever says is we're going to rebuild again stronger and better than before. But um, uh, there's an inevitability to this uh, that there'll be retreat because um, as one historic preservationist I talked to, Said, you know, you can only save so many lighthouses. Um, there's going to be an element of kind of triage in how we think about this because um, there are some places that will just don't have the won't have the money, the political will, whatever to even attempt to save. And that's already going on in a quiet way in a lot of coastal cities where they're making these decisions about where to invest and where not to invest. But um, this is not an idea that is, you know, fresh to me or anything like that. It's just a sort of a plain inevitability to it. You know, you know, Miami Beach with six feet of sea level rise is, is not going to be there. I mean, it will be underwater. So, you know, unless you, unless you want to imagine a kind of, you know, boat civilization or something like that, I mean, but Miami Beach as we know it is gone. And it, so is a lot of South Florida by that time. I mean, basically everything up till Miami is underwater. That means Homestead, all that area down there, South Miami-Dade County, and all of the stuff, uh, Doral, places where like President Trump has his golf course, uh, are all gone.
2: i was just say that's exactly right. I think when it comes to retreat, it's not a question of if, but probably when, and whether it'll be planned or unplanned. And the nightmare scenario is that it's forestalled for as long as possible and unplanned. And the folks who are left behind in Miami or Sweetwater or Mobile or wherever are the folks who have the least ability to get out. Uh, You'll see the flight of people who have the means to get out start to happen. It's already happening, but you'll see it especially after major storm and flood events. And it'll be folks who can't get out who are left behind to steward what's left of their city.
0: Well, there's geologic history behind this, right? Uh, every, every Christmas time, my family and I, we go to Florida. And a couple of years ago, we were there. Uh, and we were looking at, um, uh, it was a museum exhibit about a history of different peoples who've lived in Florida. And they talked about how these people lived hundreds of yards off of the current shore because Florida used to be really, really wide. And as more and more ice has melted or the seas have warmed, Florida's gotten narrower and narrower. And that, for me, clicked that, hey, we've got a situation here where this is, you know, we think in the terms of our lives and in the, in the time span of our lives. But over time, this is not anything that seems unusual. And I hate to say it. It sounds so doom and gloom. But for me, that clicked it. You mentioned earlier, Jeff, the issue of politicians and the, the political implications for somebody who might be trying to do something about this. And I wanted to pull another quote out of the book. If I may, I'll go ahead and read this one. You write in the book. In a world of quickly rising seas, the rationale for encouraging people to move out of harm's way is straightforward. It saves money and it saves lives. For elected officials, the rationale for not encouraging people to move out of harm's way is also straightforward. If you ask voters to do something difficult, something time-consuming, or worst of all, something that costs them money, you get voted out of office. Talk about the challenge that politicians, particularly those that might want to face this, are facing.
1: Well, there's a number of challenges that politicians face on this. You know, the simplest one is simply that this is a kind of long termish problem that you know they um, are very short term focused on, like what's going to get them elected in two years or four years, and so thinking about difficult things like even you know something as simple and as necessary as sort of. Uh, rebuilding um, sanitation systems or something like that. Totally necessary if you want to think about these coastal areas uh, surviving in an in in even modest inundation. Uh, but this is, you know, hundreds of million dollars on projects that are uh, the least sexy thing you could possibly imagine. And, you know, no one's going to, like, win re-election on, like, I updated the sewage system. You know, that's not a winning slogan. Um, but more broadly than that, you know, there's these difficult decisions that are coming, not just about like where to spend money on infrastructure and things like that, but they they really there really is this idea that you that that some of these places are not viable that they're going to have to uh, move people out of areas because they're not going to be able to f- afford services and things, and and as real estate values begin to decline, property values decline, it, it gets into a kind of economic tailspin, which is really really troubling. And you're seeing a response to that already. So it's interesting that just recently um, in areas that were uh, kind of devastated by these storms this last year that we had in the Atlantic and the rebuilding, the Housing Association and other builders have, have really pushed hard not to strengthen building codes but to loosen building codes because these coastal areas are so desperate to have people move back in. And so we're having these perverse incentives of, like, to keep people there, loosening building codes, which is the exact opposite of the direction that we need to be going in.
0: I want to ask you about a tipping point. You kind of referenced it there. Um, at what point do people figure it's time to leave? And more specifically, what's going to be that, that real issue that makes them go?
1: I don't think there is a one tipping point, And I think that there's not going to be a like moment when everything is fine in South Florida, then everybody realizes, oh my God, let's get out of here. And then there's like, you know, mass exodus up 95. Um, I think that it's going to go in pulses. But I think that people are already, I mean, I just wrote about this for a, a Rolling Stone story. People are already making this decision to get out of there. Uh, I was recently at a book talk in Asheville, North Carolina, and 350 people showed up. And I said, why are you all here? And they said, well, we've come from the Outer Banks because we wanted to get out of there while our homes still had some value. So people are already making this decision. And it's going to happen more and more um, as it becomes more obvious with the flooding, more and more with the damages. Um, And I think that it will. the people who will move back in and think that they can buy at these lower prices. But but there's an inevitability about this. Uh, and the concern is what what Billy talked about is that the people who are least able to move and most vulnerable, either for financial reasons or because of where their job is located, you know, they can't just like take their iPad and work anywhere, are going to be the people who are left behind. And, you know, what's going to happen to them? And, you know, there's a, there's a subtext to a lot of people uh, in a lot of the conversations I have with people that the government will take care of us. And this is interesting, even in places like the Gulf Coast where there's no faith in government, there's some idea that the government won't let, they'll, take, they'll buy our house, they'll do something for us. And I think one of the really hard truths that's going to happen is that ain't going to be true, that we do not have the money. We didn't, there's, there, that's not going to happen. So a lot of people are going to lose a, a lot of money and the whole American dream of having, a, uh, you know, owning your own house, having all your sort of financial value in your house, having worked hard all of your life, and then finding out that that house is worth half or a third of what you thought it was at the moment when you're like, you know, wanting to retire or pay for your kids' college, I think the political consequences of that are going to be huge.
0: It's also the issue of insurance, specifically. Wanted to ask you about that, Billy how that plays into this.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, insurance is is a whole other thing, I think, in this conversation. But I want to go back to a point Jeff just raised, which is about the sort of incentive basket for cities and for states, especially the two that we've talked about the most, I think, which are Texas and Florida, which have no income tax, right? They have a huge property tax associated with their states. So for them, all the incentives are there as a state or a local government to build, 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 even if it's in the flood zone even if it's in a place that, you know, is a repetitive loss property in FEMA's or NFIP's database, they're going to build there because they need the receipts to keep government running. Um, and that's mu- that's a much different, you know, I think, set of uh, or set of incentives or set of choices you have to make than it would be for an insurer like NFIP. I mean, NFIP isn't really an insurance market right National flood insurance Program. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I get lost in the jargon sometimes. Um yeah, NFIP is another one of these things where we talked about, you know, I think all of these homeowners along the Gulf and mid and South Atlantic. Uh, having this expectation that somewhere down the line, government, whether it's through NFIP and FEMA or some other agency, will buy them out. And that'll be the the way that they get out of whatever, you know, sort of trap has been laid for them. NFIP is going to go away in our lifetime. Uh, Congress has already broached the topic. And I think-
0: Is it already bankrupt or- Yeah. I mean, it it doesn't pay
2: for itself. It requires, you know, a transfer from general funds to operate. And takes about 10 years or so to pay off a major disaster event like Katrina, like Sandy, like Harvey. Um, and you do that by you know having a semi-functional insurance pool in which you have lots of people across the country at risk of flooding um, paying into a system to pay off things for years and years and years. And that's eventually going to go away because not only do we not have the money to buy all these people out of their homes, which – you know, I think is a reasonable expectation for folks who moved into places without being told what the risk was. Um, But we're not even going to have the money to keep NFIP operating as we know it, if at all, uh, in the very near future. And that'll just send shockwaves through every coastal housing market and every housing market in the country when it happens. Uh, I think we already started to see a little bit of a signal for that when the topic got broached during uh, budget negotiations after Harvey and Irma and Maria last fall.
0: It's an interesting point that you bring up. I mean, who's going to pay for it? But it sounds like in some cases, the governments have to pay for it. You bring up the issue or the example, I think is of Route 1A. Is that in Florida? The coastal route uh, that frequently gets floods, uh, flooded, uh, damaged. The local government pays a disproportionate amount of its budget, maybe more than its budget, just to keep that road going. And the people who live there sue or have sued because they didn't; it wasn't repaired. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, that was an interesting case. Um, this is in an area uh, just south of St. Augustine um, where you have about 50 homes that are uh, at the end of this coastal road. And that coastal road has been there for 60 or 70 years. And as the seas are coming up and erosion is getting greater and greater, that road keeps washing out. And the county basically ended up saying, look, you know, uh, we can't keep re- afford to rebuild this. And this is the kind of thing we're going to see a lot of in the future. We can't afford to keep rebuilding this road. It's costing us, I don't remember what the numbers are, but 7 or $8 million a year, huge percentage of our road repair budget for the entire county. You know, we can't give it all to just this one road. So we're going to stop. And this, the homeowners, who were very kind of wealthy and well-connected, uh, sued the county as a, a taking, a real estate taking. Mm-hmm and said you're taking our property from us and therefore you know you either are going to pay us for our homes which was million many millions of dollars or you're going to keep fixing this road and because you've built this road and because it was has been you've been doing it for 60 or 70 years you're legally obligated to do it and the county fought back and said no we're not legally obligated to do it and it's not a taking and you have you know your expectations were you know uh, uh unjustified. And it became a legal battle and they settled it out of court and they're both kind of paying for it now and the road is I was just there a couple of weeks ago and it and it's a total mess and um barely functional. And there's an inevitability to this. There, that road will not survive much longer. In fact, it's already I would say impassable by anything but an SUV. But that's going to happen in more and more places where the government is going to say we can't afford to keep doing this, you know. We we can't afford to keep this road, uh, or you know, we can't afford to uh, fresh water in in South Florida. We can't afford to put a new well in here anymore. There's just it's just not worth it. There's only three hundred people here. We're not going to spend you know three million four million dollars drilling a new well for you guys. You're on your own with water or a whole sequence of things like this. Are are how this is going to play out in kind of incremental
2: ways? That's such an important point too because I think. You know it's easy in a design school to step back and to dream big about what the you know adaptation investments could look like in a place like a houston or a miami or even smaller places like you know mobile or homa or brownsville or anywhere else and you know to then come to the realization that we can't even really afford to maintain the infrastructure we have how in the world are we ever going to afford to pay for new infrastructure some cities will figure it out it'll be the places with a lot of money and a lot of political power and most of the rest of the other cities will be left to fend for themselves and they'll follow a very very similar path to the one Jeff just laid out. And it's not without precedent in other non-coastal cities. If you look at you know, Detroit and Pittsburgh and some of these other shrinking cities, right, where they've lost a lot of population and you know, over time have decided to cut portions of the city out to de-annex it and to cut services to them and to let roads return to gravel, uh, that same path is going to play out all over the coast.
0: Jeff, I want to ask you, what is going to be left behind in places that are abandoned, and what might the environmental impact be? I, I have this image in my head of Miami, Miami Beach abandoned, and all these high-rise, once luxury buildings, just kind of standing there. What happens?
1: I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what happens. I mean, um, it's hard. I, I, it's hard to imagine how how you know, this, these cities will look in a hundred years or something. I mean, there will certainly be money put in, there'll be interesting structures that will be built, that will be elevated. You know, I'm sure there will be, you know, uh, buildings that people get to by boats and there'll be canals. And I mean, I don't know what the adaptation sort of pathway will look like. You know, I I know that it's not going to be pretty. uh, It's not going to be simple and it's not going to look anything like it does today and whether it be Miami becomes a kind of pirate outpost <laughs> or or some kind of new fantastic city that the, the new Atlantis or yeah with with this sort of ring of wreckage around it or something i mean or or maybe maybe there'll be some investor who comes in and cleans out the wreckage i mean i don't know but um uh I, I don't know how to predict the future in that sense because, uh, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, the real X factor is, you know, human behavior and how we will think about this in the future. And, um, but I just know that it will look nothing like the city does today.
0: One final question I wanted to ask. Um, in the news fairly frequently recently, at least to my notice, has been the topic of geoengineering. And that is basically the idea that mankind can actively manage climate and temperature. And you've written a whole book about the subject. And there are obviously issues about whether this is technologically feasible, what would the environmental impacts be of geoengineering. But I thought you brought up an even more interesting challenge to this. And that is, as you say in the book, who controls the thermostat? As you, I think you referenced Vladimir Putin as a... As a, as a Hypothetical He's a example. He's guy we he
1: could, can trust him. with he, it. He wants it. No he problem. wants it to be nice and
0: warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the Marshall Islands, <laughs> they want it to be cool. Yeah. Uh, it, it, tell us about that
1: challenge. Well, so geoengineering. Just to be clear about what it is, there's many. Uh, it's it's sort of large scale manipulation of the Earth's climate, and there's uh, lots of technologies that one could use to do this. But the one that's that's um, most worth talking about and most likely to be deployed is what are essentially artificial volcanoes. Um, ways of putting um, small amounts of sulfate particles high in the stratosphere, as volcano eruptions do, that act as little parasols to reflect away sunlight. And and from computer models and things we know that reflecting away just like 2% of the sunlight can basically offset the warming of a doubling of CO2. So um, there's a lot of interest in this because if you think about what is a quick fix, and you know we all know that um, Americans particularly, love quick fixes, whether it's diet pills or whatever. Uh, Geoengineering is the closest thing we have to a quick fix. And uh, and on the cost scale, the idea of putting these sulfate particles into the stratosphere, probably the most likely way we would do it is by a fleet of high-altitude aircraft. It's not expensive to do in in the scale of things. It could be done by a couple of billionaires on their own. It could be done by any particular nation. Uh, and there's, to my mind, you know, a kind of inevitability to it because of the fact that at some point as these climate impacts uh, accumulate, there's going to be a push for do something about this. And because of the sort of lag system of the, the way buildup of CO2 uh, acts in the atmosphere, you know, even if we demanded to everyone shut off fossil fuels, it wouldn't matter. We have to do something to reflect away the heat. So if we wanted to do something like to stop Greenland from melting, this is the only technology that we really know of that could do that. I'm not endorsing it. It's a very bad idea for many reasons. Uh, This notion of who decides how much particles you're going to put up there. Are we going to just do a little bit? Are we going to just take the edge off warming as some people would like? Or hell, let's just... Create a new ice age, you know? Uh, You know, you can go into all the scenarios of weather warfare and all that kind of thing. But I want to say very clearly that uh, I did write a book about this. I do think it's inevitable. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. I don't think it's necessarily as bad of an idea as some people think. And I also want to make very clear that it's not happening now. There are a lot of, like, chemtrail people and others who believe that this is sort of going on in some sort of secret way. Uh, and I can assure you and assure them that it that it isn't. Um, the flashpoint right now is, uh, do we do some field testing of this? Because no one is really, we've done a lot of modeling around it. And there's some really smart scientists, especially at Harvard, a guy named David Keith, who I know very well, who wants to do field testing, put a little bit of particles up into the stratosphere above, say, Arizona, uh, see what happens, what, what the actual effect of it is in the sense of how much sunlight it reflects away, and how the spraying works and all that. And uh, that is a big flashpoint with the environmental community right now. They do not want that to happen. They see it as a slippery slope towards deployment. I disagree. I think, it, I think it's a, a, a good way of learning about what the strengths and weaknesses of this, of this is. Um, but that's really where the rubber hits the road on geoengineering right now. Jeff and Billy,
2: thanks for talking. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Today's guests have been Jeff Goodell, contributing editor with Rolling Stone Magazine and author of the book, The Water Will Come, and Billy Fleming, research director for the Ian L. McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to the latest episode of Energy Policy Now. For more information and research related to climate policy, visit the Climate Center's website at climateenergy.upenn.edu or subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening and have a great day.